If you have Bibles, um, you can go ahead and make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, continuing in our series in 1 Corinthians this morning, and we've made it to uh, chapter 4 this week. If you're using one of those black hardcover Bibles, um, page 953 is where that starts, and then we'll flip over to 954 uh, relatively quickly. A few, uh, a few decades back, amid protests of the Vietnam War, uh, amid Nixon's Watergate scandal, there was a slogan that started to appear on bumper stickers and t-shirts. And maybe some of you remember this. The slogan was, Question Authority. Question Authority. And there are some authors, uh, actually a recent book that was written, uh, an author made the argument that that slogan really characterized the ideology of the majority of the baby boomer generation. This was like the slogan that really captured the baby boomers until they grew up and, and took positions of authority themselves. Then they didn't want to question it so much anymore. But let me ask you a question this morning. When is the last time that you have seen a question authority bumper sticker? Or when is the last time that you have seen someone walking around sporting a question authority t-shirt? I was born in the 1980s. I know I look like I'm so much older than that, but I was born in the 1980s. And so I can't recall a single time in my life when I've actually seen this slogan out and about somewhere on a car or on a t-shirt. And I don't know that I would even be familiar with it at all if I had not recently watched CNN's miniseries on the 70s. So that kind of caught me up a little bit um, to that. But the fact that we haven't seen this out in public recently, that says something about our society, does it not? An author named Stephen Um points out that though that slogan may have been making a real statement in the late 60s and early 70s, it doesn't really make a statement anymore. It's so normative to question authority that there's no need to put it on a bumper sticker or on a t-shirt or anywhere else. It'd be like me driving around with a bumper sticker on my car that said, breathe air. It's not a real novel concept. But what I want to submit to you this morning is that the problem is not that you and I hate authority. We love authority. Right? We crave authority. I think that's the problem as long as we are the ones who have it. As long as no one else has it over us. See, we don't hate authority at all. It's just that when we do have it, we use it in very self-serving ways. And when we don't have it, we resist those who do, and we battle to get ourselves into position where we will have it. And more than any other venue, the battlefield where this takes place is the battlefield of our own lives. We want independent, autonomous authority over our own lives. And there's this huge contrast in all of us in the way that we regard our own authority compared to we regard the authority of of anyone else, right? We're, We're skeptical, we're questioning of any other authority but we're completely content being the sole and unquestioned authority over our own lives. So what would happen if you or I were to drive around with a bumper sticker that rather than saying question authority said, question yourself? How would that go over in our day? I think that would generate more of a buzz. I think that would elicit more of a reaction in our day than anything like question authority would. What we see in Scripture is that authority is hardwired into God's design for the world that he has made. And so really, because of that, there is never an absence of authority. Authority always exists whether we wish it did or not. 
There are, of course, appropriate and inappropriate uses of it. There are good and God-ordained places where authority is meant to be used, and then there are co-opted and corrupted uses. And all of us know both of those things from our own experience. You no doubt have experienced abuses of authority in your life in some way or another. But rather than write off authority altogether, and rather than remaining in this position of sole and unquestioned authority over my own life, what we're called to do in God's design is we're called to exercise authority where God has given it to us, and we're called to receive and submit to authority where God has placed it over us. And one of those places where God places authority over us is through leaders in the church. And I'm really familiar from multiple vantage points of the baggage that's associated with this topic. And I'm also very aware and sensitive coming into this morning how a a pastor preaching a sermon on this topic can come across as unbelievably self-serving. So, as one who is himself under authority, what I want to invite you to do is to step into this with me this morning, to seek the grace and truth of the Word of God, and to do what I think is really a culturally radical thing, and to each one of us question ourselves and question our perception of authority, specifically in the church. So let's do that. Listen now with open ears to this book that we love. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us, has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We've become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. 
But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a, with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Gracious God and most merciful Father, you have given us the rich and precious jewel of your holy word. Through the work of your spirit, may it be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort to reform us, to renew us according to your own image, to build us up into the perfect building of Christ and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, Heavenly Father, for Jesus' sake. Amen. So as Paul here defends his place in the lives of the Corinthian Christians, he uses three pictures to convey what leaders in the church who have been given authentic authority, what they are like. And they are like this. They are like stewards of God's household. They are like spectacles in the arena of suffering. And they are like spiritual fathers. So first, leaders with authentic authority are like stewards of God's household. This is one of several texts in the New Testament where the church is depicted as the household of God. Right? God is the, the head of the household. The church are his people. Uh, they don't belong to any human leader. But just like a wealthy first century homeowner might have done, God entrusts responsibility for leading and overseeing aspects of his household to other people, to other leaders. And this is the place that Paul and other stewards, other leaders in the church have. In this text, Paul is speaking specifically about apostles, that office of apostle. But by extension and taking really the entire witness of Scripture into account, the same picture would apply to other leaders in the church, elders and pastors and deacons, people who are in those servant leadership roles. And what is the singular critical trait that Paul highlights for stewards of God's household? It's not eloquence. It's not wisdom. It's not initiative. It's not demonstrated success. Verse 2, it is that they be found trustworthy. You don't hand off responsibility and oversight of your house to someone unless they are trustworthy. And this trustworthiness or this faithfulness really is demonstrated in at least two ways. First, it's demonstrated through fidelity to the gospel message. Authentic authority in the church is exercised by those who faithfully preserve and then pass along the good news about Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. Only God himself, this is what we understand from from the the witness of Scripture, only God himself has inherent authority. Only God has authority in and of himself. So all human authority is derived from God's. And in the church, that means that stewards of God's household must be faithful to what God has revealed about himself through Scripture, through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Paul takes this really seriously in his own life, which is why later in this letter he's going to say that he passed along as of first importance to the Corinthians what he himself had received. He's not making this up. He's not not kind of creating his own message. He's passing along faithfully what he himself has received. Now second, trustworthiness or faithfulness is demonstrated in a faithful pursuit of obedience to God's standard. So it's not just about the fidelity of the message, as important as that is. It's about the faithful pursuit of living and leading according to the way God would have you live and lead. 
a huge problem that exists here among the Corinthian Christians is that they have appointed themselves evaluators of Paul without really evaluating their own evaluation. So just to say that a different way, they're evaluating Paul. They've put themselves in this position where they think they're they are able to evaluate Paul, but they haven't really thought through the, the grid that they're using to do that. And it turns out they're using a really warped criteria to evaluate him. So compared to other speakers and teachers, Paul doesn't really measure up according to their criteria. He's been found wanting, and so the Corinthian Christians write him off, even though he was the one through whom they heard the gospel at all in the first place. He was the one who, who risked his life and his comfort to bring it to them. They've written him off. And here's where Paul has a choice. The easier road, and the road that remains tempting for me and, and other leaders in the church, is to accept that warped criteria and just adjust your approach in order to measure up. So for Paul, that might mean becoming a more polished speaker or using a little more Greek rhetoric in his speeches or taking steps to make himself appear more respectful or powerful or important in order to earn the respect of the Corinthians. But Paul takes the far harder road here and in so doing actually demonstrates he's, he's even more faithful as a steward of God's household. And that is, rather than accepting the Corinthians' warped criteria, he takes the opportunity to recalibrate their gauge. Whose criteria, whose standard matters? Paul says, only God's. Not the Corinthians, but even more remarkable, Paul says, not even my own standard for myself. I don't even judge myself, he says. And what he means there is that he is so committed to God's standard alone that though he lives and he leads in a way where his conscience is completely clear before God, he has the wisdom and the humility to recognize that a clear conscience isn't what ultimately acquits or vindicates or commends you. Only Jesus can give acquittal or vindication or commendation that actually matters. So trustworthy stewards are truly stewards. They aren't trying to play master of the house. They aren't trying to play God. They know the household doesn't belong to them, and so ultimately, they care only about pleasing the head of that household. So two implications here, one for how we view leaders in the church, and the other for how leaders view the people that they're called to to serve. First, a, a question for us. What criteria do you use to evaluate leaders in the church? What criteria do you use to evaluate leaders in the church? Jesus' primary criteria is that they are trustworthy, faithful in both the, the content of their message and the conduct of their lives. And by extension, if we're going to follow a leader in the church, if we're going to submit to that authority as God calls us to submit to that authority, that leader needs to be a trustworthy steward. This gets fleshed out a little bit in other scriptures. Places like uh, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 give us a more robust understanding of what a faithful steward in God's household looks like. But the thing is, for us, when we add criteria to that, charisma, entrepreneurial skill, eloquence, whatever it might be, that is overstepping our bounds, and that's using a warped criteria, a warped grid to evaluate our leaders. A second implication for leaders Leaders, you don't have to conform to the warped criteria that people impose upon you. And indeed, you must not conform to it. But instead, be single-mindedly devoted to God's standards for God's household. 
In a different letter to churches in this region called Galatia, Paul articulates the struggle that stands before him and really every other leader in the church. He says this in Galatians 1.10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. As a recovering people pleaser, just how I sometimes describe myself, I know that's a sin pattern of mine, I I speak of it almost as like an addict would speak of whatever they're addicted to. I'm a recovering people pleaser. As a recovering people pleaser who sits in a position of leadership, this is a truth that I need rehearsed and reminded of in my own life constantly. I, I am called to serve the church, but one of the ways that my sin pattern can warp that understanding of serving is by changing the definition of serving to mean giving people what they want. Which if, the, if people are using a warped grid or warped criteria is not serving them well at all. Serving them well is doing what Paul does here. It's recalibrating the gauge. It's helping give them better criteria and a better grid. And so I pray that I would increasingly have this single-minded devotion to seek the approval of God, to be that trustworthy steward that God calls me to be. And so practically, when you're inclined to pray for me, pray for me this way. And pray for your other elders this way. And pray for your home group leaders and your other leaders in this church this way. And if you're actually thinking about what you're praying for there, it'll feel odd. It'll feel counterintuitive. But pray that you would always be led by people who care far more about faithfulness to God than they care about faithfulness to you. Pray that your leaders would give you not what you want, but would give you what you really need. And then pray that God would prepare you to receive that well when it comes. Because though all of us, most of us at least, would say, yeah, this is a great thing. I want that. In reality, when this comes, very few of us actually appreciate this, myself included. Okay, second, leaders with authentic authority in the church are like spectacles in the arena of suffering. They're like stewards of God's household. They're like spectacles in the arena of suffering. In verses 9 through 13, Paul uses this other image. And I want to read those verses to you again. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, like the refuse of all things. Paul would make a great seminary recruiter, would he not? Other seminaries, I looked up a couple this week, other seminaries' recruitment pitches sound something like this. Your revolution starts here. Change the world. Prepare to make an impact. Paul's, prepare to be the refuse of all things. That word for refuse is the word for excrement. I mean, he is quite literally saying, be prepared to be treated like expletive. Be prepared to be treated like crap. The metaphor here is that Paul and the apostles are like men who are condemned to die. And in first century Roman Empire, the context in which this letter is being written, spectacles were made of such people. They were brought into an arena, they were put on display in humiliation 
as they then were killed by wild animals or whatever means of death might have been in vogue in that moment. So that's Paul. On the other side of this, though, you've got the Corinthians who perceive themselves, in verse 8, to be rich kings. And so the road divides, just as it does today, 2,000 years later. And the question that we have to wrestle with is, are Christians more like rich kings or spectacles in the arena of suffering? There is some truth to the rich king piece. Right? We even saw it today in some of our liturgy that Christians are adopted into God's family. We are sons and daughters of the king. And Paul says in another letter to this same group of people, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul says that Jesus, though rich, for our sakes became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. And he's talking in that moment far more about the, the richness of the blessings of the kingdom of God and salvation, not material wealth. That's a topic for another day. But what the Corinthians are doing here and I think what we are prone to do as well is to overrealize this. Right? The Corinthians perceive themselves to have arrived. They've become Christians, and so in their mind, their suffering is over. They are rich kings now. And as Paul alludes to here, it's as though that their triumphant reign with Christ has already begun. And they've so taken this mindset that not only have they become averse to suffering in their own lives, they have become averse to those who suffer, like Paul. Right? They think Paul needs to be more like them, arrived and triumphant. And so they judge him, and they find him wanting, when in reality, what's happening here is that they actually need to become a lot more like Paul. In this life, the kingdom of God, though it's already present, though it's already working, it is not yet fully arrived. And our triumphant reign with Christ is not now, it is later. And so a genuine experience of the Christian life always includes suffering. Maybe not Paul's particular experiences of it, but certainly suffering. And this is particularly important for leaders who are given authentic authority in Jesus' church. They must be willing to suffer. They must be willing to be spectacles in the arena of suffering. And not for their own sake, not because they have some kind of martyr complex and they want all eyes on them, but because they know beyond the shadow of a doubt that they have not arrived. God's kingdom hasn't fully arrived yet. And until it does, leaders in the church, not only the people, but leaders especially in the church, must be willing to experience not only the comforts and the blessings of God's kingdom, but the weakness and the suffering that comes in this life as well. A couple implications and applications here for us. One, this is why you should run from every prosperity gospel preacher who says if you only have enough faith, if you only have enough faith, you will be healthy and you'll be wealthy, and you won't have to suffer in this life. These men and women who say things like that are so unwilling to suffer that they have categorically removed it from their understanding of the gospel. And that means it is no gospel at all. But prosperity preachers make a relatively easy target for me, and probably a relatively easy target for many of you in this room. Most of us are not in a place right now where we're at risk of believing lies of the prosperity gospel. Maybe some are, in which case I would say, consider what I just said very deeply. But many of us may be at risk 
at thinking ourselves more like Paul when we in reality are more like the Corinthians here in this text. Are you and I averse to suffering? Almost certainly. Almost certainly. If something is going to cost time and money and energy and leave us drained and feeling beat up, how often are we signing up for that? How often do we bless when we are reviled? Don't we often revile back instead? How often do we endure when we're persecuted? Don't we often throw up our hands and cry foul and then retreat to a fortress where we can live in isolation from other people rather than actually endure persecution? How often do we entreat when we're slandered? But not only are we averse to suffering, like the Corinthians, we are averse to sufferers, to those who suffer. Do you ever find yourself thinking that there's something wrong with people who suffer in an ongoing way? We run from people who are really needy. And could that be, in some way, because we consider ourselves to have arrived? And in our over-realized view of God's kingdom, we've judged those who haven't, quote-unquote, arrived and found them wanting. People who perceive themselves to have arrived tend to look with disdain upon those who are continually in places of suffering. And we start to think things like, well, why can't they just snap out of it? Why can't they have a better attitude about that? Why can't they just arrive like I have arrived? And Paul here is talking about apostles, so I want to be careful not to connect every detail of this. There's important differences. But it's a timely reminder for us. I think this very problem surfaces in the heart of white Americans at how we can look at black Americans and other minority groups. All of you, I'm sure, are aware, two more black men, Terrence Crutcher, Keith Lamont Scott, were killed this week. And so we again, this week, are reminded, we see the strife and the factionalism and the pain that exists in our nation. There were riots in Charlotte this week because of that. And this isn't primarily a sermon about this topic or or how to respond, but this text does, I think, bring an important and significant opportunity for us to reflect and even repent where that's needed, right? Black Americans have suffered for centuries in ways that most most of us in this room cannot comprehend or understand at all. And so if we find disdain in our hearts rather than compassion for them, Might that be because we have grown so averse to suffering in our own lives that we have also, like the Corinthians, become averse to those who suffer? Right? If that's what's happening in our hearts, if that's even some of what's happening in our hearts, if we look at minority communities or the black community with disdain instead of compassion, may God help us. May God help us. And as we remember that that we have not arrived, may that make us more willing to suffer. And then as we suffer, may we find more compassion for those who suffer rather than disdain. Leaders are like stewards in God's household. They're like spectacles in the arena of suffering. Finally, leaders are like spiritual fathers. Spiritual fathers. Authority, as as it has been designed and prescribed by God, is always meant for the flourishing of those who are underneath it. And this picture of a good father with his children helps us at least start to grasp at that. Though fathers abuse authority when they use it in inappropriate ways, 
They also do incredible damage when they neglect to use the authority they're supposed to have and use in the ways that God intends. There's this huge epidemic in our culture, in our society today, of fatherlessness. And no one in their right mind steps back from that situation and says, well, it's good that none of those kids have dads because dads sometimes abuse their authority in the lives of their kids. That's only half of it. That's only half of it. Deep down, we all know children need the good authority of a loving and affectionate father. That's the picture that God himself uses with us. He is the father. And to all who receive Jesus, he gives the right, he gives the privilege of being called children of God. By extension, then, leaders in the church are given some of God's own authority to serve as spiritual fathers to spiritual children. And that's this last metaphor that Paul uses here in verses 14 through 21. And what it does is it highlights two primary things. That leaders must be worthy of imitation and that leaders must be willing to use their power to discipline when it's necessary. So leaders must be worthy of imitation. A good father models how to live. And so a spiritual father models how to follow Jesus. And I'll be completely honest with you this morning, this intimidates the heck out of me. Because it's a lot easier for me or for you in any position that you might have authority in in some way or another to say, do as I say, not as I do. It's a lot easier to say that. And in some cases, anybody in a position of authority will have to say that. There are no perfect examples And the whole point of the gospel is not that I am able to do this perfectly, so follow me. It's that I am unable to do this, so look to Jesus instead, just as I look to Jesus. But at the same time, it's a glaring omission to call people to something when we are unwilling to model it. We can't hide behind the words, do as I say, not as I do, as some kind of excuse. And when we are in positions of authentic authority, we're meant to live the kinds of lives where we can say with sincerity, do as I do, because what I am doing is pursuing faithfulness to Jesus. Leaders must also be willing to use their authority to discipline. Good fathers discipline their children. God himself disciplines us as a father would a son. That's how the author of Hebrews describes it. And as an extension of God's authority... Human fathers sometimes must discipline their children. Spiritual fathers must sometimes discipline their spiritual children. And what Paul's doing here is really setting the stage for what he's going to talk about in the next chapter, which is where we'll be next week. But before we leave this for today, let me just ask you this. Do you believe that leaders in the church using the authority God's given them to discipline, do you believe that's a necessary and good thing? And not not just in the abstract, functionally, in your own life, do you believe in the importance of leaders in the church using the authority they have not only to encourage, not only to equip, not only to care, but also to do things like rebuke and correct? And this isn't just about what you will tolerate me or someone else saying in a sermon. It's not just about what you'll let me get away with saying from up here. The rubber doesn't really meet the road in sermons. By God's grace, they'll be helpful. The Spirit of God will use them to bring conviction in our lives. I pray that way. I hope that that's the case in what you experience here. But the rubber doesn't really meet the road in sermons. It meets the road far more in one-on-one discussions about our real lives. Puritan pastor Richard Baxter was incredibly insightful about this. 
Speaking to pastors in one of the books he wrote, he says this, people in your church will give you leave to preach against their sins and talk as much as you will for godliness in the pulpit. If you will, but let them alone afterwards and be friendly and merry with them and be indifferent with them in your conversation. For they take the pulpit to be but a stage, a place where preachers must show themselves and play their parts. And what you say, they regard not if you show them not by saying it personally to their faces that you were in good earnest and did indeed mean them. As Paul says here, the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. And there are a lot of people in pulpits and out of pulpits who wax eloquent talking about the kingdom of God. But what Paul says here is that leaders with authentic authority, with the loving affection of a father, are called not merely to use empty words, but power they've been given from God to bring the gospel to bear in real lives, in real situations. Now, as I said at the beginning, this is a weighty topic full of baggage and, and ripe for misunderstanding and misapplication. So how do we live this out well? The way we live this out well, friends, is by coming to this table over and over again, as we're going to do in just a moment. This is a table where we see precisely what the authority and power of God look like. It's a table where we see what authority and power in the kingdom of God accomplishes. Because before Paul ever set foot in Corinth, Jesus was the ultimate steward of God's household trustworthy enough to be sent by God from heaven into the world that he loves to build his church. And the church is indeed built on him. Before Paul experienced a single hardship, Jesus was the ultimate spectacle in the arena of suffering, laying down his rights, laying down his power, and giving his life for the good of others. And before Paul was ever called upon to be a spiritual father of anyone, God made himself father to his people. So the authority and the power of God, friends, the authority and the power of God is our salvation. It is our salvation. It is the only thing upon which we stand. It is our only hope. And so may we not cast it aside when God grants some of that same authority to other servants that they too might use it for our good. Because this is our God and because this is his good design and because Jesus, our Savior, is also our example to imitate. May we appropriately exercise authority where we've been called by God to use it. And may we humbly receive authority where God has placed it over us. Amen. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you know the trepidation of my own heart going into this week to talk about this topic. And that's because I've been both guilty of using my authority in inappropriate ways, in my family, in the church. And I've also been a victim of receiving authority used inappropriately against me. And I know that this is, I'm tempted, Jesus, as I know many in this room will be right now, to just throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, forget it, it isn't worth it. But I pray we would see the intent of your heart and how you use your authority and power to rescue us and save us. And I pray we would not cast it aside because your authority is our salvation. 
May we be people who live this out well with one another, who use our authority where you've called us to use it, who receive it humbly and submit to it where you've called us to receive it and submit to it. And as we come to this table, reminded of our weakness today, may we see at this table that you have used your authority and power to save us, to rescue us. Thank you for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.